In a few moments, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12, which has a lot to say to us about what it means to be members of the body of Christ. And when we think about members of the body of Christ, we tend to think of adults or maybe teenagers, but those aren't all the members of the body of Christ. When we think about our infants, our toddlers, in our Presbyterian circles, we call them members of the church, and we don't mean like part members or junior members or pseudo members. We mean they are members of the church. The covenant community that God has called apart from this sinful world to himself, he has always marked them as belonging to himself through a sign of the covenant. In the old covenant, in the Old Testament, that sign of belonging to the visible people of God, which was then called Israel, was the sign of circumcision. And it was given to all the males of the household, even to those that were a few days old. All of those living beings that were a part of the covenant community of the Old Testament were recognized as members. But when we came to the new covenant, the sign of circumcision was changed to the sign that we call baptism. But the meaning is still the same, that those who receive the sign of baptism are marked and recognized as members of the covenant community. It is just a sign. It is not supernatural. There's no supernatural energy of God that transforms the child. There's no coming in of the Holy Spirit that happens at, the, at that time that that sign is given. It's an outward sign that points to an inward reality that must occur in this child's life at some point when they come to an age of understanding and they can receive Christ by faith. As we'll see in the passage we look at in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 12 later this morning, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit's job of sovereignly invading the life of a sinner in need of grace and giving them new life, new birth, birth from above, and incorporating them into the true, eternal, invisible church of God. And that's what the sign of baptism points to. It doesn't cause it, but it points to it as a necessity in the life of any sinner. And so when we administer the sign of the covenant, recognizing that our children, even our youngest children, are a part of this covenant community, we're also giving them a sign of the gospel. This is their hope. It is our hope for reconciliation with God, new life, eternal life, in the presence of God. And so it's with great joy that we welcome the newest member of the Oakwood Church family, our covenant community, the Troxels, Josh and Amanda, if you would come, and with as much of your family as comfortable coming, we'd like to have you join us up here. Josh and Amanda, you have made public and consistent testimonies to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the gospel that the scriptures teach us, the, the risen Christ that the scriptures present to us. That is your hope. You have confessed it, you have lived in submission to his lordship, and now he has blessed you with another child, a precious gift from him and a tremendous responsibility. And so we do have you take vows as part of this. This, is, this sign is for John. But this ceremony is also for you to make your public commitment to be faithful to the scriptures, faithful to the commands that the Lord has given you as father and mother to raise this child in the ways of the covenant, to raise this child according to the will of God and to teach this child the word of God and to discipline this child by the principles of the word of God and to live a godly example before him. And so these are very solemn vows that you take. So allow me to lead you in these vows that you take before the Lord and his people. Josh and Amanda, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? 
Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? And do you now unreservedly commit your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, this is not just a, a ceremony to, to speak of for just this family, but it is for our whole church family. As they make commitments to the Lord, we make commitments to them. We are the covenant community that surrounds them as they seek to be faithful to these vows. So I have a question to ask of you who are members in good standing of Oakwood Presbyterian Church. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Thank you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this child and for this sign of the covenant and all that it represents. May this child soon experience by the gift of faith all that this sign represents, the cleansing of his soul, the regeneration of his heart, the being set apart to God, the, the, the unity with Christ, and the renewal and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. May all these things come to pass in his life from a very early age. We commit this child to you through this administration of the sign that you have commanded to your church. John Luke Peter Trotter. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, over all. Let's continue in prayer. Father, give Josh and Amanda wisdom, give them patience, give them guidance and direction by your Holy Spirit and by your word, and empower them to be faithful to these vows that they have taken. Father, we thank you for all the children that you've blessed them with. And Lord, I pray that this family would be a great building block in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May they be a testimony in the way that they love one another and the way that they love the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to his word. Lord, this is beyond them. They need your spirit. They need your word. And we commit them and this family to you and to your glory. And thank you that you've made them a part of this covenant family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Congratulations. Congratulations. Let's stand and sing together with one verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness as we celebrate. Let's sing this together a cappella. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. If any of our children would like to go to Stepping Stones, our program for kids during the sermon time, you're free to go at this time. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning we'll be looking at the second half of the chapter. We began our study again in 1 Corinthians after a, a period of uh, looking at some other passages through the fall. We began last week with the first 11 verses of chapter 12. So we pick up this morning with chapter 12, verse 12, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Please give your attention to God's word. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sen- where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. One of the basic assumptions that people go through life with in this culture, in any culture, is that bigger is better. A bigger house is better than a smaller house. A bigger car is better than a smaller car. A bigger salary is better than a smaller salary. A bigger helping in a meal is better than a smaller helping in a meal. That's the way we think. Bigger is better. Unfortunately, that basic assumption tends to be carried over into our evaluation of churches. Isn't that usually the first question you get when you start to talk to somebody about your church? They'll usually, very early in the conversation, say to you, well, how big is your church? How big is your church? As though that were the key factor the size of your Sunday morning attendance or the number of your ministries or programs as though that were the key defining factor to know how good or how healthy your church is. Now don't get me wrong, it is true that healthy churches, spirit-filled healthy churches that are in favorable circumstances will tend to grow. And I admire a lot of very large churches for the resources that they have and the opportunities that they have and the way in which they have an impact for Christ. But just as small churches face specific challenges, so do large churches. And one that I don't think we talk enough about is how in larger churches, it's difficult to have all of your members fully engaged and involved in the life and ministry of the church. It's hard to get everyone not only identifying what spiritual gifts, as we talked about last week in the beginning of chapter 12, not only identifying those gifts, but getting them engaged in the work of the ministry. In the economic world, they have something they call the Pareto Principle, the Pareto Principle. You probably know it by its more common name, the 80-20 rule. It started out in the economic field. It was actually an Italian economist who came up with that 80-20 number because he figured out that his principle basically, to state it basically, would be to say that 80% of the outcomes come from 20% of the causes. And so particularly in Italy, what he found out is that 80% of the wealth in Italy was Uh, belonged to and was produced by 20% of the population, the 80-20 rule. 
Well, as I'm sure you've heard many times, that's carried over to the church world as well, but it's not applied to finances, it's applied to the work of the church, that 80% of the work of the ministry of the church tends to be done by 20% of the membership. That's the 80-20 rule as it applies to the church. And, from, and I think there's some truth to that, a lot of truth to that in the life of many churches. And as, just as from my very limited vantage point, I, my observation is that, that there is also a principle that seems to work, is that the larger the church, the lower the percentage of the membership that's actually involved in doing the work of ministry. Now, that's not true of all larger churches, but that tends to be the case. The larger the church, the smaller the percentage of the membership that's actually involved in the work and ministry of the church. When I went to, uh, my wife and I went to a PCA General Assembly many years ago, it was in Dallas. And during the assembly, they, they usually have a large banquet for the wives of the elders that are involved in all the meetings. And my wife, Suzanne, went to one of these large banquets uh, with several hundred wives there. And, it was put on by one of these very large churches, say of much larger churches down south. I learned that when I started going down there. And one of these very large churches put on this banquet for the wives of the General Assembly uh, elders. And my wife noticed that the people serving the meal all were, had uniforms on looking very professional uh, servers. And so she leaned over to the, the lady sitting next to her and she said, well, it's really nice that this church paid to have this meal catered for us. And the lady said, oh no, those are our servers. That's our church's servers. They, they had them on staff paying the people to do it instead of having volunteers from the church to do it. Now, I don't know, I don't want to make any aspersions about that church, but just interesting that they had the resources to be able to pay a staff to do what smaller churches would have volunteers doing, serving a meal. My oldest son is a graphic designer by trade and he works for a megachurch in Nashville. He is on staff full time as a graphic designer, but it's not just him. He's part of a five person graphic design and publishing staff at a church, a single church. That's just a whole different world from what we live in normally. And again, that's not necessarily bad in of itself, but does it reflect churches as they get larger falling into the temptation of paying people to do things in ministry and not looking to the membership of the church to be involved and engaged and using their gifts. It's a temptation that churches face as they grow larger. I'm sure you've heard us calling out repeatedly week after week for volunteers for different ministries in the church. It gets to be a challenge as the church gets bigger and the needs get greater, but we have to resist the temptation to pay people to do what the membership should be doing in ministry. The result of a professionalized church through paying people to do ministry is that the typical member sitting in the pew becomes very passive and very consumer oriented, expecting their needs to be met but not actually contributing to the life and ministry of the church. We call them couch potatoes at home. In church, we call them pew potatoes. <laughs> They're very well-fed, but very inactive. And they become consumers. And as typical consumers, what happens to consumers is they get very self-centered, they get discontent, and they become sideline critics of the people who are doing the work of the ministry. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 12, and there we saw the main point that Paul is making in this entire chapter, and really as he's setting the tone for the whole section of 1 Corinthians, is that the Holy Spirit is the key to the health and growth and ministry of the church, and the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every member. Remember, we said that last week. Paul made that point. To each one, he gives gifts, at least one gift that's meant to be employed for the good of the church, for the common good, as he says in verse seven from last week's passage. Well, in the second half of the chapter, he keeps repeating this message. In verse 12, he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, he's speaking there of the physical human body, 
Just as our physical human body is one and has many members, so it is with Christ. Well, he's assuming there, you understand, he's talking about the church, the metaphor, the church being the body of Christ. He goes on in verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 20, For there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's this whole message of unity. We are one body of Christ, but there is a diversity of members and a diversity of gifts that make up that unity. And as we said last week, that reflects the unity and diversity of the triune God that we serve. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This passage that we read this morning from verse 12 to the end of the chapter is one long illustration of the principle. He just teases out and draws out that idea that the body, the church, the body of Christ, the church, is very much like the human body. And so we're going to be dwelling on that this morning as he, he applies that to this point and to what it means to be healthy. What, the way he's going to describe a healthy church relates to how we understand a healthy body. Well, how is the church like a body? The Bible repeats this metaphor over and over. It's a very important concept. Obviously, the Holy Spirit wanted us to be sure that we got the point that we are to see the church as a body, the body of Christ because it's very important to our identity. It's central to our identity. That God sees us and deals with us as individuals. Yes, he does, and the scriptures teach that very clearly. But he also sees us as organically connected. And I use the word organically there in the sense of being connected like an organism. That there is a life that pulsates through all of us that we share in common and that connects us, integrates us, and coordinates us powerfully in a supernatural way. We are organically connected. I sometimes hear Christians ask the question, why do I have to go to church? Why can't I just listen to a good preacher over the internet or watch a good preacher on TV, if you could find one, or why can't I just go out and worship in the woods? It's easier for me to worship in the woods anyway. Why, why do I have to go to church? Or, more specifically, off, more often I'll hear the question, why do I need to be a member of a church? Why can't I just show up and, and come and go? Why do I need to be a member? Well, this passage answers that question. This passage says, yes, God deals with you, sees you, deals with you, relates to you as an individual, but he also sees you as organically connected to the rest of your church family. That you are a part of a body, and it's essential that you see yourself that way. So, Paul tells us, first of all, why should you be a member of a church? Why should you be intimately connected and engaged with the other membership of the church? First of all, he says, because we're all one in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us a deep unity that the world can't even possibly understand. Verse 13, he talks in verse 13 about how we become a part of the body of Christ. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you may have, when you read that the first time, you may have thought that maybe he's making an allusion to the sacraments that we are baptized, and you thought of water baptism, like we just witnessed, and drinking of the one spirit. Maybe, maybe you think he was talking about the Lord's Supper, or taking the cup of the Lord's Supper. But he's actually not talking about the literal, physical sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. He's actually talking about what they point to, which is what we call the true baptism of the Holy Spirit. Being baptized through the Spirit into one body, drinking of the one spirit, the water of life, it's that moment of conversion. It's that moment of regeneration. It's that moment when the Holy Spirit chooses you, invades your life, when you're a, a hostile, rebellious sinner, and he changes your heart, he takes your heart of stone away, gives you a heart of flesh that loves God, that seeks God, that wants to know God, and can believe the gospel. It's that moment of spirit-infused life from death that unites you to the rest of the body of Christ. 
That's how you get into the body, by being born again, by being regenerated. And when you are brought to life like that and engrafted and in, and in, into the body of Christ, that means you are joined with every other true believer in the world, but particularly in this local body of believers. You are interconnected. You have the same Holy Spirit that every other believer has. Notice that this sovereign act of the Holy Spirit does away with all the earthly distinctions. They become meaningless. He mentions being Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, or being, um, being rich or poor, being a slave or free. You know, these distinctions go away. They're not important anymore. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? Are you part of the body or are you not part of the body? What distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian is not your upbringing, not your, not, nothing else about you except for the work of the Holy Spirit entering into your life, giving you new birth, and incorporating you into the body of Christ. As believers, we all have the one Holy Spirit. And we all have him completely. He's a person, he's not an energy. You know, you can't have in the church some people that have 20% of the Spirit and other people have 80% of the Spirit. That might match our workforce, but that's not the way it works. He's a person. You, he's either with you or he's not with you. He's either in you or he's not in you. He's a person. Star Wars has the Force. And some people have more of the Force than others. You know, that old phrase, the Force is great with this one. You know, the, the, the Force is powerful with this one. It's, it's because the Force in that theology is an energy. And you can either tap into it greatly or you can tap into it and do it in a small way. But it's not like that with the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit if you're born again and your faith is in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit connects us as members of the body and coordinates us as members of the body. Paul doesn't really uh, dive into the idea of Christ being the head of the body in this passage. It doesn't come out clearly here. But he does develop that in other passages in the New Testament, that Christ is the head of the body and we are the, the body of Christ. And what's interesting is that back in chapter 2, if you remember all those many months ago, when we looked at chapter 2 in verse 16, he's talking about worldly wisdom and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And he says that, that we have true wisdom. If we're born again and we're incorporated into the body of Christ, we have true wisdom because, he says, we have the mind of Christ. We share the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit is with each one of us who are true believers. And that kind of helped me to understand the body analogy because if you think of the mind of Christ, it tends to think of the physical brain. If the, if the brain of Christ gives us the mind of Christ, then the Holy Spirit is kind to me, and this may not be, Paul may not be comfortable with this, but that's how I take it another step. The Holy Spirit is kind of like the nervous system of the body where it delivers the mind of Christ to the different parts of the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is with every part of the body. Now, every metaphor and analogy breaks down, but you get the idea. We have the mind of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit that integrates and coordinates how these different parts work. And each part has specific abilities that contribute to the whole. I mean, if I were to just set a pen down on the pulpit, and I want to write a story, I mean, the idea hits me. I would like to write a story. Just the process of reaching out and precisely and delicately picking up that pen, pulling the cap off and sitting down with a piece of paper and starting to write a story, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. The process, all the different elements that come together from the brain to the nervous system to the, to the fingers to the dexterity, all these elements come together to produce something beautiful. And that's how the body of Christ is meant to work, with that kind of coordination and, and, and precise integration. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so Paul says, we are one because we all have the person of the Holy Spirit within us. Secondly, he says, we all have important but different functions in the body. And this is really what he hammers home in several different ways in this passage. Verse 14, he says, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. And what he's getting at there is that not all the parts of the body are the same. Matter of fact, 
they're extremely different if you think about all the different parts of the body. But it's one body. Unity and diversity, not uniformity. That's what we talked about last week. God loves unity through diversity, not unity through uniformity. He wants the Corinthians to imagine what the church would be like if the Holy Spirit gave the same gift to every member. Every member had the same gift. Could you imagine what the church would be like? I mean, that's literally what he's saying in the passage. What if, what if everybody was given the gift of prophecy in the church? What if everybody was gift, given the gift of miracles in the church and no other gift? What if everybody was given the gift of administration in the church but no other gift? You had the administration church here and the prophecy church there and the wisdom church there. That's not the way it's meant to work. He even talks about what if everybody, you know, everybody in the church of Corinth, as we will see when we get to chapter 14, everybody wanted the gift of tongues because that was the, the trendy, the hip gift of the spirit. The one that the, the cool kids in the church had was the gift of speaking in tongues. And he says, what if everybody was speaking in tongues and that was the only gift given to the church? What would that church be like? That's not how the body works. So in the next section, it kind of sounds like, you know, when I read this next section, I can't help but think in my mind, go back to those those uh, educational cartoons in elementary school where you have personified body parts talking to each other. And that's really what, what Paul does in this next section. He imagines, and he goes even further, you not only have personified body parts talking to each other, but two of the body parts have an inferiority complex, as you'll notice quickly. The foot is complaining because it's not a hand. He feels insignificant compared to the hand. The Holy Spirit must love the hand better because he's a foot, you know. That's, that's the image he's putting for us. You know, think about it. Would you rather be a hand or a foot? I mean, hands have opposable thumbs. I mean, try to do that with your big toe. You can't do it. I mean, toe, feet can't grab things, at least not very well. Think about it. Your hands are out. We talk with our hands. Our hands are out in front of people all the time, but you cover your feet with shoes, and nobody looks at your feet, hopefully. <laughs> You know, just even the long fingers and the dexterity you have with these long fingers compared to those stubby toes, what are they good for? The foot works in the support business. It's transportation is what foot, the foot is good at. And we take it for granted, and it feels insignificant. And then he says, what about the ear and the eye? The ear has got to be jealous of the eye. I mean, the ear is a very special thing. The ability to hear is a wonderful thing, but it's not an eye. I mean, you don't communicate with your ears, but you do communicate with your eyes. The eyes are where people look into your soul. I mean, the eyes, you know, beautiful eyes are some of the best traits of a body. You know, the eye is the, the flashy one. And he says, would the ear be jealous of the eye? Does that really make sense in terms of what the body is all about? And so he basically goes on to say, where would the eye and the hand be if the ear and the foot got discouraged and quit their job? Where would the eye and the ear, where would the eye and the hand be if the ear and the foot were gone? And, you know, that, we, we get that, but it would hit a first century Christian much harder because if you were blind or deaf or mute or lame in the first century, you are a beggar on the street. That's the only way you could live. So where would all these great gifts be if you didn't have the rest of the gifts of the body? That's his point. In verse 17, he gets even a little more ridiculous. He, he, he takes this personified eye or ear. He says, what, what if the whole body was an eye? What if the whole body was an ear? And I don't know, again, going back to too many cartoons when I was a kid, I, I think about an eye with you know, kind of stick arms and stick feet walking around or, or ears with arms and hands and feet you know, walking around, but not in Paul's analogy because in his analogy there are no arms and feet. There's just an eyeball sitting on the floor, <laughs> an ear sitting on the floor. You know, what good is that? It's ridiculous. And you know what's just as ridiculous? Churches that only want to be teaching churches. Churches that only want to be music churches. Churches that only want to be campus ministry churches or youth ministry churches. Churches that want to be all about doctrine or all about mercy ministry. That's not how the body works. It's a simple message. 
every member and every gift and ability given to every member is essential to the work and ministry of the church for the church to be healthy. And I will point out at this point that we Christians tend to overvalue the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individual members of the church that the world tends to overvalue and honor and respect. And the church devalues or ignores the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individual members that the world doesn't honor or respect. And so, you know, I've said this, you know, I get a lot, I love you guys. You guys are wonderful for giving me meaningful and important encouragement and feedback all the time, but I, I get way too much of it compared to what the rest of you get in terms of what you do in ministry. It's way out of proportion. We need to share the encouragement and the appreciation for what every member with every spiritual gift is able to accomplish to make this ministry healthy. And this leads to Paul's final point, which is that the body is, that the church is like a body in that all the members, all the parts, desperately need each other. We desperately need each other. In the first section, verses 14 to 20, where he has these personified body parts arguing and fighting with each other and being jealous of each other, he's illustrating members of the church who felt like they weren't important because they weren't speaking in tongues, because they weren't upfront prophesying, because they weren't in positions of leadership in the church, and they felt like their part and their gifts weren't important. And so he's trying to encourage them to say, no, we need all of you just as much. But in the second section, beginning in chapter, or verse 20, going to verse 26, he addresses those Corinthian Christians who had the splashy gifts, the ones who were speaking in tongues, the ones who were prophesying, the ones who were teaching, the ones who were leading, and he addresses their spiritual pride. And as we've seen, the church in Corinth was a very prideful church and very divided church as a result of it. And so in verse 21, you've got these body parts fighting again. And it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No part of the body can say that it doesn't need every other part of the body. We need each other. The Holy Spirit's intention in giving all these varieties of gifts and assigning them to different members is to bring us to the place where we are totally interdependent with each other, not independent of one another. The ministry of the church is a whole team effort, but it doesn't look that way so much of the time. When 20% of the church is doing 80% of the work, it's not a team effort. I love it when, after a team wins a football game and they interview the quarterback or the running back about how many completed passes they had, how many yards they were able to run, a humble quarterback and a humble running back will say, let me begin by thanking my offensive line because I wouldn't have been able to do any of it if the offensive line had not done their job well. And that's the kind of attitude that we should have about everything in the church. We need every part doing their part well in order to be healthy and effective. I'm not a big board game guy, but one board game that's come along the last few years that I really enjoy is, is Pandemic. Have you played Pandemic? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's an interesting game because it's not about competition. It's not about players competing with one another to win. It's about cooperation. And the basic idea of the game is, is that there are diseases, deadly diseases breaking out, epidemics breaking out all around the world. And when the game starts, all the different players around the table are assigned different roles. Sound familiar? You're assigned a different role to fight the epidemic, to fight the outbreak of disease. And so one person is assigned to be a scientist, another person is assigned to be a researcher, another person is assigned to be a medic, another person is assigned to be over operations, another person is assigned to be a dispatcher. And the idea is that every player around the table has to do their job well in order to contain the outbreaks with the goal of curing the diseases and keeping the pandemic from sweeping across the planet. Extremely hard game. I've never succeeded in keeping the planet from entirely dying. <laughs> but I love the idea of the game and I think it's, it's a game we should play together as the church. 
to get this message across to us is this, this is what we are about. The Holy Spirit has assigned us different roles and has given us different gifts and abilities to take the gospel to the world and to bring the impact of the kingdom of God where it needs to be felt and heard and experienced. I don't know, so those of you that are on the, the um, I've just been kicked off, I hear, but those of you on the RUF Facebook page, um, I, 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 was, I, I snuck into the group for a while, but they found out I was there, so now I'm kicked out. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, last week, before I got kicked out, and it's, it wasn't a slight, they did it to everybody who's not in RUF, so it wasn't a slight to me. Um, but they, um, they, Joe Dennessy, the RUF pastor, posted a video thanking Ann Johnstonbaugh, and I know Ann hates it when she's singled out publicly like this, but thanking her for over 10 years of making treats and refreshments for the RUF group that meet on Thursday nights. And it was just, it, I just warmed my heart as a pastor to watch all these RUF students expressing thanks to one of those behind the scenes people who doesn't get nearly enough acknowledgement and encouragement and honor for the selfless circuit service they do. And I mean, I love it. If we had the resources, I'd love to do that and make it a regular feature on the Oakwood Facebook page that we find somebody behind the scenes doing faithful, long-term service and just let everybody thank them. It's a great idea. In verses 22 through 24, Paul talks about the parts of the body in kind of an odd section here, a little bit uncomfortable for us. He talks about the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, that we think are less honorable or unpresentable. Now, he's talking about, you know, we think about the human body, parts that are weaker and parts that are unpresentable. And he says, look at how we treat them. And again, talking about these unrespected, behind-the-scenes, unknown servants in the church. Probably thinking of two types of parts of the body. One would be, I think, most commentators think that the, that the weak parts are the internal organs. It's probably what he has in mind. You know, you don't want your internal organs out on display. You really don't. I don't want your internal organs out on display. You know, they're, they're, they're not presentable in that way. and They're weak. They need to be protected. That's why they're internal. But boy, are they essential. Don't leave home without them. You need them desperately. You need them desperately. And then, you know, quite honestly, almost every commentator I read says that the unpresentable parts he's talking about is what we would call our private parts. But he says, look at how we cover them. We clothe them, we keep them covered. In a sense, you know, we, the first thought is we do that out of shame, but he's actually saying we do that as a, as a sense of honor. I mean, these are important parts of us that we share only with our spouses. You know, this, these, these are very special parts. We treat them with honor in a sense. And they're so important to our life. And so he's saying, you know, he's making the same point. There is no unnecessary member of the church. There is no member of the church that can be a pew potato and live in, in, in ongoing inactivity, that's not, it should never happen in the life of a healthy church. In verses 25 and 26, he picks up on the idea that we talked about back in verse 7. Remember back in verse 7, he said, to each is given the manifestation or the gift of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Well, here in verses 25 and 26, he says that this is all that the members may have the same care for each other. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Why did he make us so interdependent? Because Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love one another. That this is the purpose, is to create a body of believers that love one another, that serve one another, that are dependent on one another, not independent. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit in all of this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I mean, think about it. You break your leg, your whole body's going to suffer with it. That one part is broken, but the whole body suffers and is limited by it. On the other hand, you eat a nice, big, tasty, juicy meal, your whole body, your stomach gets the direct benefit, but the whole body rejoices as the one part is honored and rejoices. When we humbly use whatever gifts and abilities were given for the common good, this is when we, in the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, we build up the body of Christ. And that's what we're all about. That's what the Holy Spirit's purpose is, is to build up the body of Christ. And that's what happens. In Ephesians 5, Paul actually carries that over to another topic. And 
Ephesians 5, he goes from talking about how we are integrated to build up the body of Christ together through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and then he switches topics and he starts talking about marriage and about the husband and wife and their relationship to one another, but he comes back to the same idea, and I want to show you this. It's a a section of Ephesians 5 that I I remember thinking, well, this, I'm not sure I understand this, or this seems like it doesn't fit very well, until I saw that connection with what he's talking about the church in chapter 4. Listen to what he says in the end of that discussion about the husband and wife and how they, they love one another and how they relate to one another. I'm going to pick up the reading in Ephesians 5, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now, you know, he says that this is to be a description of a healthy marriage, that the husband loves his wife the way he loves his own body. Now, I'll admit to you, I have never said that to my wife in a romantic moment. I love you, dear, the way I love my own body. I don't think she would take that well. But if you understand the point that Paul is making, he's saying, by loving your wife the way that the scriptures tell you to love your wife, you're actually doing what's best for yourself. You're actually being who you're supposed to be. You're fulfilling your calling. And it's the same way in the church. He actually he makes that quick transition from husband and wife. He says, it's the same way with Christ and the church because we are members of his body. As you love one another and serve one another and employ your gifts in service to one another and to the kingdom, you actually love each other well. And you become what the Holy Spirit recreated you to be and it's even better than that I just want to tie this in as we as we draw to a close he talks about when we suffer one of us suffers all of us suffer no one in the church should ever suffer alone no one in the church should ever suffer alone When one of us suffers we all suffer because we're all one body when one of us rejoices we all rejoice together we mourn with those who mourn we rejoice with those who rejoice that's the way the body of Christ is meant to work But it's more than that. Remember, Christ is the head of the body. And there is an intimate connection between suffering and being honored as believers in the church with Christ himself. And Paul calls that sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I just want to run through a number of verses real quick here to show you how this is so important to the theology of Paul in the New Testament. Remember, he got it from the very beginning when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecute the church, to throw believers into prison and to lead them off to death, Jesus confronted him. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute the church, you touch the apple of my eye. You attack me. I suffer with the church. When you cause the church to suffer, I suffer with the church. Paul carries this on through the rest of his ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We suffer with Christ, we rejoice with Christ. That's how it works. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. We share in his resurrection, we also share in his sufferings. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking to the church in Colossae. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul understood that when he suffered for the faith, that Christ's sufferings, not in terms of his atoning sufferings at the cross, that was once for all and complete and done, but talking about the ongoing sufferings of the church, that Christ suffers with the church. We suffer with him. We are united to him. We are his body. He is our head. And so we share in his sufferings when the church suffers. And just to make sure it wasn't only Paul, we have one quote here from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So not only when we minister using the gifts that he's given in his name, but also when we suffer together, we actually are drawn into a deeper fellowship, not only with each other, but with Christ himself. And that's a healthy body, according to scripture. 
The question that people should be asking us isn't how big our church is. I hate when we get into numbered answers for questions like that. It shouldn't be about how big our church is in terms of attendance or programs. The question should be how fully engaged, active, and interdependent are your members? How fully engaged, active, and interdependent are your members? There is a sign of a healthy spiritual body, a healthy congregation, and that's what we're striving for. One last point. I didn't touch much on the last few verses of the chapter. Much of it is just another list of the, of the gifts, a lot of the miraculous that were operating in the first century in Corinth. But did you notice that in the beginning of that list, beginning in uh, verse 28, he starts with the leadership of the churches, the ones who spoke the word of God to them, the apostles, the prophets, and the teachers. And then he gets into a, a list of the, spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And I think in that, I actually, as I thought about this and what a healthy congregation, what a healthy body of believers looks like, I thought, isn't it interesting that he gave a list of the leadership first? And I think, to me, it helped me to understand what the point and purpose of staff in a church really is. Why do we have staff paid by the church? Why do we have full-time pastors? Why do we even have elders and deacons, leaders of the church? Why? What's their purpose? It all goes back to, what again, what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He gave, Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's why you have staff in a church. That's why you pay people to administrate and to oversee and to guide and to direct. It's to equip each member of the body to do the work of ministry. You're the ministers of the church. You're the ones to be doing the work of the ministry. The reason you have a staff in the church is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Not, a church should never hire staff to do ministry. And once that begins to happen, you step towards an unhealthy state for the church. The leadership, the staff, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So let me close with these questions again, similar to what I asked you last week. What gifts has the Holy Spirit given to you as a believer, if you're a believer this morning? What gifts has the Holy Spirit given to you? How are you using them? And one last thought. We all need you. We all need you. Because being a healthy church is our goal. In God's eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to understand, to apply it. I pray that as we all consider the way that your spirit has come to dwell in us, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us eternal relationship with our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that over the coming weeks we be thinking more and more about how you have called us to serve. You've given us responsibilities and you've given us gifts and energy and desire to do the work. Lord, help us to become fully active and engaged and interdependent in the work of this ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the manifestation of his kingdom here in State College and Penn State and Center County and beyond. We pray in Christ's name, amen.